This episode is brought to you by Core, the brand new non-custodial wallet that offers a seamless and secure experience on Avalanche. You'll hear more about Core later in the show. All right, happy merging. Happy merge, everybody. Uh, welcome to the roundup. We got Santi here. It's Yano. Santi, welcome. Happy merge, my friend. Happy merge, everyone. It's a it's a great day. Uh, you know, for for most of us at least, it's a it's a very. Uh, I think it's like a crypto holiday. Yeah. <laughs> it will be. It is. I think it. I think it will be. I think it will be. It happened at two. So the merge happened at two forty three a.m. Eastern time. That was like. Morning time, your time. Were you were you up? Were you having your espresso? I was I was just waking up. Yeah, I was tracking it. Nice. Uh, so it was a great way to start the day, and the fact that it went so like so far very smoothly was uh, just just really nice to see. Yeah. What's the What's the first time you heard about the merge? Oh, like the the word itself. Not the not I the word, but like just this idea of moving from proof of work to proof of stake. Oh gosh. Well, it's been like since like the super early days, like it's been talked about forever. As far as I can remember, we, there's ongoing discussions around talking about scalability, I should say. And, and also as part of that, uh, we kind of touched on it on the Cosmos episode, which we'll talk, get into it later in this, in this pod, but, um, right around like, I'd say the first two, first, you know, 2015 or 16 or so. Um, and, Back then, maybe a lot of folks remember or not, but like proof of stake wasn't this, <clears throat> there was a lot of contention, criticisms. A lot of people didn't believe the proof of stake was going to even work and were quite like, there was a lot of criticism. And I've observed that a lot of people have, you know, maybe it's because there's other networks that have launched that look, Ethereum is not the first network to, it's the first network I think that like has upgraded migrated to proof of stake and done this transition which is really hard and i think it's some perhaps one of the more important things of like this adaptability of the of ethereum and the community and like upgrading the same way that you upgrade your operating system like you know these these things are it's pretty hard to coordinate but there's other networks that went way before them right cosmos you got uh, tezos you have uh, other versions of proof of stake that like went before ethereum and i think it's been pretty interesting over the years to observe that like I guess call it Lindy of, okay, proof of stake can actually work and it, it can be a viable consensus engine that can work and proof of work. It doesn't like, it's not to say the proof of work because, you know, for a long time, which is like proof of work, why would you do anything other than proof of work? But anyways, uh, yeah, long-winded answer, yeah. but I think uh, it was right around like 2015 or so, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And you? We we uh we do talk about it in the Cosmos episode that comes out on Monday um about like that 2014 presentation from Jay uh, it's really interesting but I think uh I man I just like woke up in such a good mood and uh, was just thinking about how crazy it is that you know you have these two hundred thousand person banks that can't even ship like a usable mobile app and we have these ETH core devs okay. that have like worked tireless tirelessly. Uh, mm -hmm. And ship this thing, and I think it's I think it's not just a win for for crypto, uh, and not just a win for ETH, but I think it's a real win for decentralization and for for just open source software. Honestly, yeah, absolutely. I think um, maybe that is the most important thing, really. The fact that yes, okay, it was delayed. Yes, there was a lot of um, I guess people were critical of that, but in many ways, like we have to. Think about, as you said, which is centralized organizations, this innovative dilemma that 
it's really hard even for for centralized organizations to make radical changes. And the fact that a decentralized organization, certainly not as hierarchical as you know companies, if you will, was able to do this and pull this off is is a pretty remarkable feat. And I think it gives us hope on you know this idea that we're very early and we don't know if we're designing like very we're probably designing like the first versions of a consensus engine that there's like it's hard for me to believe that we're not going to be making other modifications over the next 10 20 years and i think this is a really good precedent and case study of it is possible to upgrade it is possible to modify things and sure it takes time and coordination but the fact that we're able to do this in an open source context is even more remarkable and i think is for me one of the more bullish one of the more exciting and like things about ethereum as a community that is adaptable and and i think if you're adaptable in this open source world that is very competitive it probably it sets you up more for success yeah yeah exactly i want to um so I was looking at mainstreams, obviously, like all the publications, including I think Blockworks had really good coverage of the merge the last couple of weeks, but other publications did a really good job, too. It was very interesting looking at the mainstream publication coverage mm-hmm. of the merge. Um, so let me just share my screen. And I'll show you this. Anyone watching on YouTube can see this, um, but I can also just talk through it for, for folks listening on like Spotify and Apple. Um, this is CNN's coverage of the merge. Uh, the world's second biggest cryptocurrency just got a lot greener. This is The Verge. Ethereum will use less energy now that it's proof of stake. This is Forbes. Ethereum Merge. Here's what to know about the hotly anticipated upgrade turning the crypto player green. And this is Politico Pro. Uh, Green crypto Ethereum wins applause in Brussels and in Washington. I think this is the most important narrative that crypto has ever seen. Right? We saw Bitcoin get really, really hamstrung and just hit uh, very hard last year by the Bitcoin is bad for the environment. And this obviously trickled down into Ethereum with like NFTs are bad for the environment. There are a lot of good things at the merge. There's, you know, it turns into a deflationary asset. Uh, it, it becomes yield generating asset. But I think this like ESG, it satisfies the ESG mandate. And it's this green, like, I think we're moving from, um, it, Ethereum moves from this like thing that's bad for the environment, again, in the eyes of investors and mainstream media mm-hmm. to something that is like innovative, clean, new tech. So it was just, I, I love seeing how mainstream media covered this. It's very, very interesting. Absolutely. Not only that, but it comes at a time where there's a lot of, of attention on rising energy prices and the crunch that right. the impact that's having. And I think when you look at it from that perspective, I mean, timing is key to construct narratives. And, you know, the fact that it happened in this particular moment of time, where natural gas prices are through the roof, we're, and we're in this environment where there is a lot of criticism around, even more so around like proof of work and the the wastefulness of the energy, which I, I don't necessarily agree with. On, but nonetheless, yeah, um, it is super important from that narrative, right? The ESG narrative is something that we've talked about a lot about of how that is a positive setup. You know, people should go and, and listen to the podcast that we recorded with Travis from Ikigai. Um, you know, this was in May or March of last year, of, of this year, sorry. And I think this is, uh, I agree with you. It, it, it's probably the biggest narrative shift um, and with a lot of momentum behind it. And so timing here is very key that we, uh, there's a very good tweet from Vitalik that quoted uh, uh, Justin Drake, which is one of the core devs. He says, the merge will reduce worldwide energy consumption by 0.2%. Now, I, I don't necessarily know the basis of, of that, 
we can link to it. And uh, but nonetheless, if you just take that at face value, it is um, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it is. I think there are two other in- or another big interesting thing that's worth talking about. And again, I will link. Uh, we'll we'll throw it in the show notes or. I don't know. You can just search for it. But we did an episode with Travis Kling that I think was really good on this. Um, the other big thing outside of the environmental impacts is this. So if you can see, if you're on uh, YouTube, you can see this. The total ETH supply peaked at 120 million. Uh, now that the merge is live, ETH is currently deflationary. Over 80 ETH have already been taken out of supply. And this chart just shows it really, really well. Um moving from this inflationary to a deflationary asset, really important. And just in general, like the supply demand balance of ETH changes dramatically here, right? So in a proof of stake, uh, excuse me, in a proof of work system, uh, miners spend like significant sums of money to run these like large, uh, what people would say is energy intensive compute facilities to secure the chain. For doing that, they're rewarded with tokens, uh, in, in ETH's case, obviously ETH tokens, and then they have to sell those tokens to pay their bills and their hardware costs and things like that. In a proof of stake system, validators stake significant amounts of, of the base t- token. So in ETH's case, it's, or in Ethereum's case, it's ETH, and then they risk losing them if a bad transaction is validated. So there's really very little cost associated with the staking. So the tokens that are earned from the staking are mostly held, right? So in proof of work, you have to spend mm-hmm. money on hardware and all that stuff. So then you have to sell it, uh, the token that you get to pay for the hardware costs and staking, you don't really have those costs. So right. I've seen a lot of estimates on how this shift is going to play out. And, you know, I think, uh, I think it was Fred Wilson put this in his blog, uh, is that Ethereum moves from a system that has roughly $20 million a day of structural outflows to a system that has roughly $500,000 a day. Of, of structural mm-hmm. inflows, right? So yeah. you're going from $20 million a day of structural outflows to half a million dollars a day of structural inflows. And that mm-hmm. that's a very uh, important uh, supply and demand uh, dynamic shift there. Uh, absolutely. Um, two things I want to point out. One, yeah. this feels to me like a more balanced and incentive aligned uh, where all of the stakeholders or most of the stakeholders that are securing and validating blocks are longed are more aligned with each other. Whereas if you think of a miner has really high capex and operating costs, and they naturally have to recoup, right? And sell. So there's this constant sell pressure of what is being mined. And in a proof and that's in proof of work. In a proof of stake system, that's not necessarily the case. And so the more so that's one component, uh, which to me feels like a more viable security mechanism for the long term. And second of all, is this idea that as more talk tokens are being staked, there's sort of like this balance, right? Because like the staking yield is factors into this of like the opportunity cost and what people do. But nonetheless, like, you know, the more people are staking, float really reduces dramatically um, or, you know, yeah. and, and that has pretty interesting dynamics, right? If there are not a lot of sellers because they're staking, well... Combined with the ESG narrative, combined with the ability to perhaps earn a staking yield with a you know CBE or SDE or what have you, um, it uh, it puts a lot of upward pressure, and so it takes an incremental, uh, a marginally less amount of demand to increase the price. This is just standard economic terms, yeah. and, and and so mm-hmm. it's um, yeah, it'll be pretty interesting. Uh, I think what I'm looking at now is <clears throat> what will happen. With a lot of the players that try to play the proof of work, like the the proof of, uh, the proof of work ETH and those forks, and um, that's going to be an interesting one. The second one is, you know, um, you know, the stake derivatives, 
Um, and as these tokens are unlocked, like what happens there? And so anyways, a lot of things to unpack, but yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Let's, you want to actually talk about liquid staking derivatives. One, one thing that, um, mm-hmm. uh, Garrett brought up that we could talk about, I, I sent this tweet out about like narratives after the merge and I was like, the six big narratives after the merge are going to be, oh, yeah. one is talking about MEV. One is talking about Cosmos ecosystem. One is onboarding real world assets. Uh, one is new DeFi primitives and, uh, one is protocol specific stable coins. The last one though was, um, liquid staking derivatives. And, um, I don't think we have to talk about all the six big narratives here, but I, you just mentioned liquid staking derivatives. Uh, mm-hmm. Mika sent out this tweet. He said, liquid staking derivatives are likely to replace regular ETH as the primary transaction currency in DeFi and NFTs. Nothing else post-merge is guaranteed uh, to be up only except for LSD, liquid staking derivatives supply. I'm just cur- I'm curious if you agree with uh, Mika there. Yeah, it's definitely possible um, for sure. Um well, look, the derivatives markets are much, va- much, much larger than the notional like spot markets, I guess. And so, I I would think that, um, yeah, especially as more people like if you're holding ETH, there's a big opportunity cost of not staking it, uh, right? You're just being inflated out. And so, most people will want to stake, but also maybe just do that in quickly. The ability to come in and out of that um, without necessarily gates is is pretty valuable. And so, liquid staking, yeah, likely will have much much more volume you know over time not initially but over time like maybe in the next five years there'll be like this flipping of like the liquid staking vol- derivative volume like far far is a multiple of what is being transacted on like of just eth and yeah i mean what is the here we can we can pull this up but what is the <laughs> uh yield now on something like lido let's see it, it almost just brings up the question of like why why would you use ETH now instead of Steeth or CB ETH or one of the, mm-hmm. what's the Coinbase's other thing? Alluvial ETH or something like that? CB, isn't that CB ETH? No, they did. They have two. It's CB ETH oh. and then they did the partnership with like Figment and someone else called, oh, right. yeah. I think Alluvial or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's right around 4%. Yeah. Currently. So it's kind of like, why not just use, why would you use ETH? Uh, I mean, obviously, I guess uh, there's the risk. There's you get four right. There's risk, and there's like uh, a bit of you know uh, what happens in a depegging event, and the yield also factors into that based on how many people are staking, right? And so, um, and composability is another right. I mean, I think just pure ETH uh, could be accepted it is more widely accepted at least today than than most staking derivatives, um, and and or has more favorable like borrowing terms or what have you. So, yeah. Um, but yeah. I think um I think native staking integrations into these these exchanges is going to be I wasn't like realizing how big that was going to be but I was looking at a Cosmos last night on just Coinbase actually you can get five percent yield on your Atom tokens on on Coinbase just natively mm-hmm. like directly in Coinbase really interesting so yeah they are uh, doing that through Bison Trails I believe right this sort of, I like, think through Bison Trails did. who met we learned I learned this I didn't know this fun fact in the Cosmos episode that comes out on Monday. The Bison Trails founders met in that Cosmos kind of validator chat in the early days. Uh, I think that that Google group that they were talking about. So, yeah. Um, what do you think of the Cosmos episode? By the way, let's do a little. Uh, I want to get your take on just like that that Zachy and uh, that, that. Yeah. That before we go there, I just want to point out something that's pretty interesting here, which is yeah. uh, we've talked about in other episodes, but like I think one of the more important metrics to now track, obviously the issuance and burns, like 
just if ETH is being deflationary and what have you, gas continues to be an important one that does not solve the merge, by the way. It's just more like yeah. L2s really kind of solve that. But the other one is, I think, which is I think of, if you think of the entire DeFi stack, the analogy to like traditional markets is like this 4% number that you're seeing right here on the screen, this, this like staking yield of the base layer is kind of like the Fed funds rate, if you will. This is like the 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 risk free the the bottom kind of right. standard um of the this economy and then everything on on everything needs to sort of compensate for incremental risk on top of that right and defi anything else that you do right because that's really the opportunity cost right um it's like libor if you will or you know uh the 10 year treasury or you know um, or treasury rates. And so I think that this number is really important because I think everything else moves according to that, um, right? Because if you're getting paid less in DeFi, which has way more risk than staking your ETH, then, well, <laughs> just, you know, uh, in a rational market, there, that shouldn't be the case, right? You, you, you know, a rational economic being should stake as ETH. Um, unless, of course, you see upside in like whatever the... The, the the governance token or you, it's not apples to apples right because sometimes you're earning yield on other things right which you may see some upside but strictly speaking like like for like this is this is like the benchmark yield that you should be looking at for everything else um so it becomes very very important yeah it's interesting like if you think about the traditional economy you have uh you have the fed you have the uh you have a yield curve right and the yield curve basically shows like how much uh if you if you push out on the yield curve, you're getting higher yield usually, unless it's inverted. Um, right. You could kind of say like the staking rate here is similar to short-term government loans. Um, but there, but we don't have like the equivalent of an Ethereum, maybe yet, I would say, like the one year or the two year or the 10 year, right. you know? Yeah. Well, I've been thinking, I've been talking to this team um, that, I mean, the the landscape of ETH stake, liquid staking derivatives right now is very bare bones, right? It is floating, but you talked about this in another episode, but like, why don't, I think there will come a time where we're going to have fixed rates mm. um, and and very, very more robust markets around that, right? If, if a, one player might like, like you're just basically playing like the interest rate swaps and fixed and variable. And I think that that is a pretty interesting market opportunity right yeah. now. Uh, yeah. Because there's going to be a lot of players that are going to want to capture this yield, maybe risk the notional, like the underlying exposure. They want to just bet on the on the rates. And I mean, these are huge, huge markets in, in traditional markets, and, and they will be very big in in this proof of stake uh, system, yeah. comparing Ethereum with other proof of stake networks. And there's just so much you can do um, that, uh, you know, I think we're, we're very early in this, but uh, I think Mika is hinting at this, that uh, yeah. the, the staking derivatives market is going to be massive. There's another podcast from from Blockworks called Bell Curve, actually, and we just had the episode that came out this week was the fixed rate lending unlock. We had um, Simon Jones from Volts and Alan Nienberg from Yield Protocol. It was a really good episode, so I'd recommend mm. folks check that out. Um, nice. uh, Cosmos? Yeah, yeah, definitely. What did you think about the episode? Well, you kudos to you for lining it up. Uh, we had Saki and Jack. Yeah, Jack. Two great guys, long time, long timers in the Cosmos ecosystem. I've known Psyche for such a long time, and uh, it was good to get a refresh. I've admittedly lost a bit of touch on Cosmos. What's your Cosmos um, story? Can we start there? Like you saw Cosmos in the early days, super early days. I wanted to buy like a lot of atoms uh, back in the day, and it was hard to like. I, I didn't invest like like I guess in first round, I guess, but I was very encouraged by what I was seeing, like this 
like tender mint. Um, and I really liked they, there was a lot of people that were coming from Berkeley, um, kind of blockchain, um, group, which has historically been like really good. Um, shout out to them. And I'm, I was in San Francisco at the time. So I was just became part of like this, like discovered it that way. And, Wanted to at some point like uh, invest in Tenderman and that I think was one of the first rounds of deals that Paradigm did actually. And uh, this was like right during the bear market. And uh, yeah, over the years, I've been very fascinated by it. I was increasingly very interested by IBC and what that could do to connect other, like kind of like becoming this web of connecting chains and the communication protocol, which is kind of the key, I think, I think is a key value proposition of, of Cosmos as a network. And so it, it unfortunately took like longer than anticipated. And so that like, I just turned my attention elsewhere and then kind of DeFi took off and kind of put it in the back of my mind. But I've always sort of felt that Cosmos hasn't gotten enough, um, I guess, recognition. Um, and most people I think would be surprised to learn that like Binance Smart Chain, Terra, Facebook, like there's been a number of, like proof of stake systems that have used the tendermint and forked that code uh, to run successful proof of stake like networks. Now the the collapse of Terra and other components of these networks, there are critic. You should like strip away the the fact that Terra collapsed with like the fact that they were running a pretty successful proof of stake like like a tendermint implementation. So I think um, yeah, it was a good to have them on. I think there's a lot of really exciting things happening. Perhaps my biggest takeaway and a question that I asked during the episode was. Now that Ethereum is migrating to proof of stake, what does that mean for Cosmos, right? And I was encouraged to hear from them that it's quite positive, right? Because now that Ethereum, you know, that is, you know, the more dominant network, if you will, other than Bitcoin, but the more kind of where developer activity is and all, what have you, it can now like connect to Cosmos and there's could be a lot of really interesting like connectivity there. And it's very refreshing to hear folks like that. And I think is representative of the cosmos community, which is this win-win mentality. Um, and yeah, it's going to be really exciting. I think they're, they alluded to it and hinted at it. Um, that there are some exciting updates coming out, um, right around DevCon, And so, uh, definitely something that I'm paying attention to. Uh, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. It got me pretty excited about cosmos, honestly, like a lot of our research team is very into cosmos and they've been really I wouldn't say shilling Cosmos to me, but like just tell, you know, I, I tend to lean into the ETH side of things usually. Um, yeah. And they've just been like, you really should spend more time in Cosmos. And so I, I, I use this episode almost as like an excuse for myself to go pretty deep into reading about it and, and learning about it more and uh, just getting an update from Cosmos folks uh, as I did prep for, for the episode just to figure out like what's been built. And then I will say like Jack and Zaki, I was really impressed by by this, honestly, just the story going back to the early days that that conference in Mountain View in 2015, mm-hmm. Jay getting Vitalik on board with proof of stake back in like 2014. You know, they they had the vision for a lot of the things that we now think of as like these mainstream crypto ideas, proof of stake, even like del- like slashing, liquid staking. Mm-hmm. Like they, they, these were all ideas that came out of Cosmos in the very early days. So yep. it was impressive there. Absolutely. And then also just the app chain thesis. Um, I will say like, uh, I still need to dig deeper into it, but like this idea that you can have like these sovereign chains, there's no MEV leak. Uh, you can customize the consensus model, security, runtime, mempool, 
all all of that kind of stuff is it's a really interesting thesis. So I do believe yeah. like one day we will see a world where something like IBC can I don't even know if I'm technically saying this right, but like can live on Ethereum or can like talk to Ethereum and like mm-hmm. all these systems will one day talk to each other in the same way that you can build yeah. on like AWS or Azure, or Google Cloud or Alibaba's cloud service, but like they all can really talk to each other. I do think that's the world we one day live in. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's well said. And I think uh, transitioning a little bit, uh, one of the things that I asked him towards the end of the episode is the the fact that uh, they are more of in the less centralized. Uh, they don't have a marketing team. They kind of don't care about that. They have really good tooling and dev resources. I think they place a lot of emphasis from that because it is a very dev-centric right. kind of team. But nonetheless, I mean, I, I asked them the question, look, there are other teams, particularly like Polygon, for instance, that is crushing the BD game. And do you ever wonder that, do you ever want to do that? And maybe this was the idea behind Tendermint, but then Tendermint kind of flopped and um, and it just got disbanded. Or I think that a lot of the team left. And so it's like the tech can be great, but do you wish that you had a, a really good BD team, sales team? Are we there in that like implementation where you build that really good tech and infrastructure, but at some point I think you need to sell it. And just this week alone, like you've seen Starbucks partner with and uh, with Polygon, um, which is I think a huge testament to the BD resources and success of that team. Ryan Watt, I think came from YouTube with a big hire and like that makes a big splash. And anecdotally, I've heard that like Solana has developed this kind of rep among enterprises that it has issues with downtime. And, you know, I think it is really important because I keep coming back to sometimes the best tech does not win. Like this is classic, like VHS versus Betamax, Betamax, better tech, MP3 standard, not the best tech, like, but it won. Right. And so at some point you need to have sales muscle and BD muscle to kind of go out there and, and evangelize. And a lot of people are critical because they say, wait a minute, this enterprise interest in crypto, we've seen this. It's it's all PR stuff. It's There's no real, real there. But I kind of feel, and I want to get your thoughts on this. I kind of feel like this time it feels more substantial. You have Reddit, you have cons- like across different brands. There's, I think there's real interest in in adopting this and leveraging part parts of crypto, whether it's NFTs if you're a consumer retail brand. Uh, or social app, um, or you know, just um, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm like, I'm, I'm I, I do wonder um, th- about th- this kind of um, idea. Of course, like, does that make you more bullish on like more centralized teams like Solana, Avalanche? You're saying like, what, what's like- the what's the this idea there? The the idea that like some teams have these like strong BD and marketing teams, and then other teams are more yeah. just like. <laughs> natively growing and yeah Mm -hmm. like i believe in the multi-chain thesis like i believe in like there there won't be a winner take all maybe a winner take most but i do believe like maybe ibc helps stitch together a lot of these systems in a more secure fluid composable way but like that aside um i think i think we're still very early i don't think ethereum has won the race um but uh yeah it's sort of this idea of trying to a lot of people ask me okay which 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 are the more exciting like other L1s? It's a constant it's a constant question that people are interested in, whether you're a game and you want to deploy in another L1 or an L2, or you're a newcomer and you want to understand and maybe go to another ecosystem. And we're seeing it's a constant wave, right? Every cycle we have like other competing L1s. And maybe competing is a wrong word. It's just alternative L1s. Um 
I think you have to start with the, the end goal in mind, actually. Like just just like you're building any other company, you have to start right. with the end goal. So like let let's look at some of the L ones here. Like um, mm-hmm. we'll use Avalanche, Solana, like Polygon, Cosmos, or something like that as as examples here. Like so, Avalanche's goal, their one liner is to like tokenize the world's assets. They need mm-hmm. a BD. So what they've done is I would say they're heavier on the BD and marketing side. Yeah. But if you look at actually and you talk to their sales teams and marketing teams, they come from finance. Right, because they want to mm-hmm. tokenize a lot of the world's assets uh, and put it yeah. on Avalanche. And actually, shout out to Avalanche; they had a really interesting deal. They tokenized one of KKR's funds this week. Oh, know, Sam, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know if you saw that. It was pretty interesting. Their healthcare, uh, one of KKR's healthcare funds, mm-hmm. um, and that deal only gets done if you have a very strong BD team that comes from traditional capital markets. So that's like an Avalanche strategy. You look at someone yeah. like Polygon, and I, th- I don't actually know their like one line strategy, but it feels like they want to bring on like enterprises and like big companies and like the Disney's of the world and the Starbucks's of the world. So they have a very it feels strong, a lot of gaming entertainment yeah. focus given Ryan's background at YouTube. So they have a very strong sales and marketing team as well, similar to Avalanche, but like if you look at who they hire, very different hires. It's not the finance mm-hmm. folks, it's the like Disney people, it's Ryan from YouTube, things like that. Then you look at yeah. Solana. 92% of projects on Solana come from their hackathons. So Solana's Solana's basically building what I would call like from like crypto natives from like the ground up very grassroots very grassroots very focused on the developers um Mm -hmm. uh, and and that's what i would so like they have a smaller bd team because they're focused on like crypto natives i would say then there's cosmos Mm -hmm. which is like as crypto native as you can possibly get they're basically saying look someone like polygon and like binance smart chain they use tendermint but they'll, they'll get those big folks um we're going to focus on we're going to we think that the crypto pie is going to grow so much over the years that we're just going to focus on like the crypto natives so i mm-hmm. think it just is like different strategies yeah yeah plus now then you have other new newer projects like aptos and um sui sui is that how you pronounce it sui say also sui? just came out yeah yeah that um look a lot of people raise their eyebrows when they see these massive raises of 150 million 300 million but the reality is you're going to, and you talk to these teams and it's like, yeah, we're going to need a lot of these resources yeah. uh, to attract developers and build out BD teams. And so it's, a, it's a, you know, it's not a cheap uh, proposition. And so I think uh, in many ways it doesn't hurt to be super well capitalized because it yeah. is very, very competing um, space out there. The last bit of Cosmos. So you guys should all listen to the Cosmos episode when it comes out yeah. on Monday. We talk about this presentation that Zachy's giving. Um, the one thing to flag is like there's this uh, one of the pushbacks on Cosmos is that value doesn't accrue to Adam. They are releasing something called Adam 2.0 at the Cosmoverse conference September 26th. So you will like that's the probably thing to keep your eyes on, I would say. Yeah. Um, there's a, yeah, definitely. a bunch of other things that they're launching. So, And we'll have them on again uh, for a part two after yeah. they release um, this, which they weren't very, they didn't give us much details, but after the 26th, we'll have that part two. Yeah, exactly. Go deeper into that. All right, folks, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Avalanche and Ava Labs. They have just dropped a new crypto wallet called Core. You're going to be hearing a lot about it over the coming months. You can now be one of the first to try it out. Here's the reason I'm excited to partner with them on Empire. Right now, crypto wallets and browser extensions, they feel clunky, they feel non-intuitive. That's why Ava Labs built Core. It's a free, non-custodial browser extension that gives Avalanche users a seamless and secure Web3 experience across the entire Avalanche ecosystem. Here are a few reasons to try Core. Here's what I'm experimenting with. Number one, 
Core has intuitive dashboards with a unified display for all of your NFT collections, all your crypto assets. You can execute asset swaps directly inside the wallet. It's a really nice experience. Uh, maybe you want to earn yield or borrow against your Bitcoin, uh, but you don't want to do it on one of those C5 platforms right now. Core's native bridging functionality makes it really easy to bridge your Bitcoin to Avalanche's robust DeFi ecosystem. Last but not least, Core makes on-ramping super easy. You can convert dollars to crypto right now using the MoonPay integration. Just takes a few clicks. Download Core today using the link in the show notes. It's really, really nice. Uh, if you are interested in the Avalanche ecosystem at all, you have to be using Core. Download Core using the link below. Now, let's get back to the show. Um, I want to give a couple shout outs here. One is to Coinbase, actually. So Coinbase released this thing. Again, I'm going to share my screen. If you're on YouTube, you can see this. Um, starting today, this is a Brian Armstrong tweet. I don't know if you saw this. Starting today, Coinbase is going to integrate our crypto policy efforts right into the app. This is going to help our 103 million verified users get educated on the crypto positions held by political leaders where they live. So it's really cool. You can see this. Like This is the tool. Let's see if I can. Hmm. So, you, so I can actually see. Like You can click New York. You can say in the House or the Senate. And then I can see these people like Richie Torres leans positive. Um, hmm. If you look at like really Yvette Clark, like somewhere in the middle, like Patrick Maloney, somewhere in the middle, Carolyn Maloney, very negative. Lee Zaldin, not enough data to, to determine. I think this is really, uh, I just love this move by Coinbase. So I just want to give a shout out to Brian and the policy team there. And I think this is a cool move. Yeah. So. It reminds me of the Uber playbook, actually. I don't know if you know what Uber did in the early days when they were getting like a bunch of pushback. They basically built natively inside of the app a way to you like click a button and it sends an automated letter mm -hmm. somehow. To they their, did this, I rep, think, yeah. to in their support of like to, to their to the house. They're getting a lot of pressure from like the the taxi lobbies. Exactly. So I just want to give a shout out to them, and then I also want mm -hmm. to give a shout out to the Blockworks team. Um, we had Digital Asset Summit this week, and it was just. How's There's that? an interesting data point in here. We, in bear markets, crypto events get hit pretty hard, actually. So we budgeted, like usually at, we have two two events. We have Permissionless and then Digital Asset Summit. Digital Asset mm -hmm. Summit is like our institutional conference. Um, but like buttoned up, I'm convinced it's the only crypto event where people are still wearing suit and ties. And we did, usually did, get like- I was going to ask, did you wear a suit? So interesting. This is the first Blockworks event I didn't attend. Ah, uh, way okay. This is it was a really surreal feeling. Is this because uh, a significant life event going on, or significant just, no? life event coming up next week? And uh, okay, yeah, lock lockdown. Um, we it was really crazy. It was like such a trip. It was the first of I I didn't sell a single sponsorship. I didn't get a single speaker. I didn't. I never visited the venue. I barely sold any tickets. Like it was. Uh, I was kind of a surreal moment. Like I woke up and watched the live stream and I was like, man, we have such a good team around us. I just wanted to How give many, a shout out to the Blockworks team. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I've been to one or two of these or at least have either streamed it or been, and, and yeah, it, it skews very institutional. Uh, I'm curious, the composition of the crowd, the level of interest, some of the major topics that were discussed. I saw the newsletter, um, which goes into it a bit. It sounds like you had some really good speakers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm curious to get any sort of highlights, um, from the conference I, from you. I would say, um, so there's a couple, there's the, like, there's a couple things. One is, um, the, 
makeup of the the audience numbers were really interesting. So again, like crypto mark, so crypto events get hit really hard, right? Like if you look back at uh, in, in bear market. So if you look back at CoinDesk, I'll use the last bear market as an example. CoinDesk, their biggest event ever was consensus in like 2018, May of 2018. So there's a there's like a six month lag on conferences, by the way. So uh, a little peel back the curtain here. It's like if the, the, the market peaked out in December of 2017, Coindesk hosted consensus in May of 2018. That was their biggest event ever, biggest revenue generating event ever. Then their numbers got decimated. If you look at their 2019 event mm -hmm. for, so for us, we were looking at, we were looking at our, um, at DAS this year. Usually we get like 800, 900 institutional folks, uh, there. So we had budgeted. We're like, we'll probably take like a 30 or 40% hit. Honestly, maybe we have like 600, 700 people or something like that. We had, I think the final number here is like 1,300 or 1,400 or 1,500 attendees. So biggest wow. DAS ever, most sponsorships, like most tickets, like, and if, and like, if you look at the crowd, I think we had like seven people from Apollo, 12 people from JP Morgan, big group from mm -hmm. Goldman, every single bank attended, uh, every single bank sent at least five people, uh, ton of the big, like the large institutional players, like the Black Rocks and stuff were there, but a lot of the smaller like funds who are like, like the Tiger Cubs, like the Altimeters and like Holocenes mm -hmm. of the world, Matrixes, like they were all, they were all there. So it was really interesting to see. And I think the big conversations were like, uh, the merge was, was, was very prominent. Regulation was very prominent. Uh, cause you got to think about what this institutional crowd cares about. So it's the merge, it's regulation, and then it was macro which was really interesting. So we had actually had a lot of the macro folks, uh, the like Daniel DiMartino booths and the Alfonso Picatello's, like the, the kind of macro crowd there um, on stage with like the Robert Leshners and Antonio's from DYDX. So that was very fascinating. Nice. Is there a way to listen to these live streams at some point? Or The live streams? Yeah, we're going to put all the live streams up for free, actually. So you can nice. go to the website and look at, um, and we have the whole live stream, but then we're actually going to put up videos on our YouTube channel too. So that's awesome. Yeah. So you'll Great. be able to see that. Yeah. A bunch of good talks. We had like Mark Yusko, Dan Tapiero and Bill Barheit from Abra gave a really good talk. Robert Leshner, I thought gave one of the best talks. Um, no, he's a good one. Yeah. So, um, all right. Um, moving on. Yeah. I want to, I want to get your take on this doodles fundraise actually. So okay. for those who don't know, doodles are a collection of 10,000 NFTs. One of the most popular, um, NFT collections out there. They've done a really good job, I would say, of just like keeping keeping the hype alive. Uh, they had like this awesome thing at um, South by Southwest last year, or maybe it was earlier this year. Owning a Doodle allows you to like vote on community-driven features, products, events, things like that. Doodles um, announced on Tuesday that they had raised $54 million in a round led by uh, 776, Alexis Ohanian's firm, um, 10T Holdings also participated. FTX Ventures also Dance participated. Fun. Yeah. So, uh, and this valued Doodles at $704 million. Now, here's where it gets interesting. This valued the equity of Doodles, the parent company behind the collection at $704 million. Um, the announcement resulted in like $2 million worth of NFT sales for Doodles. Uh, and the floor mm -hmm. price jumped a bit but not even that by that much. Um, it, it, it begged the question of like, I think there were a lot of, not I think, there were a lot of people in the NFT community that were upset by this, saying that these investors should have just bought, NFTs. just bought the doodles basically. Um, mm -hmm. And then there were other folks saying that's ridiculous. You don't 
like VCs aren't just going to come in and like sweep your floor. So I'm curious, like how you, when you see something like this happen, like, what do you think is the right way to raise money as an NFT company? Should they have just bought the doodles or should they have uh, done what, done what they did and invest in the equity? I think the precedent here is Yuga Labs. The thing that you probably need to ask is you're investing in the company, the studio behind these NFTs. And they're investing equity into that studio because perhaps they believe that they're going to do much, much more with that. And so I think the structure makes sense in the same way that you would have invested in, I guess, Uniswap. Like it would be, I guess, like Fortnite, you know, or like World of Warcraft. Like if you could invest in the developer, game developer, and or buy a bunch of like in game assets and skins, like I think you want to own the developer, part of the developer to have a, a voice and say and capitalize them to support. Now, I think the Doodles team is, as you said, like they gain revenue streams, the, the studio itself, the developers that started this from secondary sales. I'm unfamiliar with the percentage of fee, but typically yeah. it's what, 5% or so, sometimes more, but give or take. So they're earning that. So yeah, I mean, at some point, like, I think they, I didn't get the pitch, but they went to these investors and said, Hey, listen, we're going to, this is the vision. This is what we want to build and get on board or not. Right. And so I think, um, I don't see that much of a problem with the structure actually. Um, if you're an NFT holder, I also don't see why it would, there's a lot of criticism, uh, other than some folks saying, Oh, pump my bags. Yeah. When you try to flood 54 million of NFT sales and you're a doodle holder like whale, then of course you want them to buy and sweep it, but it's very short sighted. I think what you, this is much more positive. If you own doodles or track the project, you know, you basically now have 54 million, um, to go out and do partnerships with other people and build out whatever it is that they're going to build out a game, movies, yeah. coffee shops, beer, whatever. <laughs> like we've seen everything in, 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 in NFT land. So I don't have a problem with it. Uh, it will be interesting to see where they prioritize that. Obviously, Yuga Labs is an order of magnitude, I think, more capitalized than these guys. But that's, I mean, it's it's like saying like Disney competes with MGM. It's like the entertainment space is vast and massive and where you can take this is yeah, uh, pretty big. And so we talked about this actually, Jason, in the episode when, when Yuga Labs raised, we said, how many other teams are going to do this? And we kind of, I would have thought by this point, you would have seen much, much more. Well, Moonbirds, I mean, it's kind of all the tier one ones have done it. It's like Moonbirds. Yeah, Cool Cats, Moonbirds, Doodles. Uh, So yeah, not surprised. And I don't think white people are really critical of it. Um, I Here's what I think it comes down to. Holders of NFTs think that they bought a an investment in into a company or something, an asset that would go up. There is an expectation of NFTs that the price of them will go up, that it's an asset. They're not assets. NFTs are not assets in the, in this sense. Well, they're, well, they're a collector asset. They're a collector asset. They're a, consu- they're a consumer product. They're a consumer yeah, product. It's, it's, if you, guys, if you go buy a Patek Philippe, you can't go knock on their doors in, in Switzerland yeah. and say, hey, guys, I want you to make a You can be hopeful that watch. it goes up. They'll laugh you out of the room. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, like, no, like, thank you for buying the watch. We love that you love the brand and are a collector. But we are the watchmakers, not you. (laughs) So yeah, (laughs) I mean, like the I think people are forgetting that they are that you are a customer of a consumer product. 
You are not an investor into an asset. You're a collector of a consumer product and a collectible. That collectible can go up. Hopefully it'll go up. I do think doodle. I do like doodles, but it is not an I have some. Yeah. So it's not a protocol token, right? It's not, it is a, it is a high end consumer product, a high end. It is a collector. It is like buying a watch or wine or a consumable. Yeah. If you like, this is the thing folks. Like I asked, uh, I met with a team earlier this week that is building like, uh, like a more of a marketplace for NFTs and basically allows you to like short NFTs. And like, if you're, if you have a huge doodle collection, say, and you, you can deposit it and earn some yield because someone's going to take that and sell it immediately and short it. And anyways, basically financializing NFTs. Um, my question was like, why would anyone do that? Like, I feel pretty attached to my NFTs. Like I like my doodle, not the other guy's doodle. Right. But I think like it goes, it begs the question of like how many people in this market that are buying NFTs are just speculating on it versus just collecting because um, I don't know. I think that I'm just a collector. Oh, like, this I don't, is I'm not. Oh, I so yeah. I invest, and there's a big part of what I do, but I don't think of NFTs as investments per se. I buy them because I love them, aesthetically pleasing, and I don't ever plan to sell them. And uh, and so it's just a different mindset. And I'm curious if you've seen data or what you think around like what percentage of the NFT market today is purely speculative and or in 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 just pure collecting because i think it does beg the question of like i think the the things that i'm very curious to understand is as prices have come down the value proposition the community the roadmap where does that go right and look punks it's crazy like go on yeah. the punks website and look at the prices of these punks in like as early as two years ago. Um, but there's a very diehard community of punks. Like there's a great, great interview that I, I t- retweeted uh, that was done like by signing messages. Actually, this guy is the number one or the number two largest punk collector holder. He has like, he or she has like 500 punks at some point had 704 punks. Yeah. Massive collection, had sold some, like 200, but it's retained a lot. And I think crypto punk holders generally are just built different. <laughs> they're just they're just like, oh, like, but some of these early, more recent projects, I do question like, you know, when you see this kind of criticism, it's clear to me that there's just so many people that are just, number go up. I want my NFT to go up and someone to buy it. Like, yeah, I, I think... Um- I think basically the market is you were, you were asked you asked that question of like how many people are collectors what percentage of the market is collectors versus what percentage is um people speculating I think it's a large amount of people are just speculating but the microstructure of the markets the things that got built out in like 2017 and 2018 and 2019 for crypto like derivatives and uh, really good OTC desks and all that kind of stuff to be able to trade in size just doesn't exist in NFTs we have I haven't told you this Meltem is going to come on the pod. Um, she wrote this great piece. We're going to link it in the show notes called, um, NFT building market microstructure for NFTs. Really, really good piece. I'd recommend people read it. I'll send it to you too, Santi. And Melton's going to come on to the pod, uh, pretty soon to talk about just like Mm -hmm. the evolution of the NFT markets. And like it taught one of the things that is in her post is like the ability to short derivatives, all that kind of stuff. The ability to trade in size, the ability to like algorithmically trade this stuff doesn't exist yet, but it's coming. I made some investments in this. I, I 
do question like what I'm just curious. Like I, I do think there's always going to be a subset of people that buy whatever wine watches collectors market are massive. The, the art market is massive. Not everyone is going to hold on to the Picasso for life. Like at some point, you know, there's a price for everything, I guess, but it, it just uh, has felt, especially towards the later parts of, of uh, the cycle that it was just very speculator heavy. Um, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm not like bearish on it. I, I just think it's a, it's important to observe, uh, that, um, and a lot of, a lot of these buys were done on leverage. And these are the things that I was like, I, my, my expectations of when the NFT market was going to top or, and I think yours too, was, it was terribly wrong. Like the same that I like widely underestimated the size of like deposits in DeFi way back in the day, just went from like zero to like a hundred billion, <laughs> uh, and was crazy to see. But at the same time, um, yeah, I think NFT markets are going to be massive. There's going to be potential and 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 these money markets, financialization of NFTs. I think it will be a thing. Um, but I just got to, you got to call a spade a spade. Like, I mean, I think a lot of teams, we should always be critical of teams that just, you know, are talking about utility and are talking about roadmap and all this jazz. Yeah, I think 99% of projects are just not going to deliver on that. Now, if you're doodles, probably hire like this is conviction right you know you raise 54 million to build whatever it is that they're going to do so um i mean i place more emphasis and be more excited about seeing what comes out of that than a team that you know is just kind of wishing that the floor price goes up and they get more secondary sales like that just feels artificial yeah um i have an acquisition that is non-crypto related that i just thought was really interesting uh do you do you know figma Design? Yeah, yeah, design. So, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, Fig- Figma basically powers the design of like everybody, Adobe XD and stuff, but nobody uses that shit. Um, Adobe just acquired Figma for $20 billion today. Yeah. Uh, happened like right, right when we were recording this. I think it might be one of the biggest private software acquisitions wow. ever. Like, gotta be top five. Um, WhatsApp was $16 billion. Intuit was 12 billion for MailChimp. This like this is, I think it was 20 billion, maybe 15, but um, yeah, really impressive. So that was just a huge acquisition. I don't know, wanted yeah. to call it out. So anywho, Santi, what else do we have yeah. to talk about here? Nothing really. I mean, some there's a few other things here and there. The thing that is we're recording Thursday, September 15th. Today, um, the chair of the SEC um um Gensler is supposed it will testify before the Senate committee uh, around what the um, around a recommend he's supposed to recommend a pathway for digital tokens to register as securities. He of course has been um, very vocal around this point that he believes that a lot of token issuers are securities, and so a lot of the kind of open questions are just you know give us a list, give us a more precise. Uh, way to do that. And uh, and so he sort of backed off a little bit from his stance, is my understanding, where he said, look, the, the, it's written there on our website. Like, it's just like a normal issuer, like go and read it and, and abide by that. Whereas now I think he's saying, um, you know, that uh, it's, it, it, quote unquote, it's sort of like, I think his latest remarks uh, softened that tone um, and perhaps says, you know, hey, this is new tech. This is, yeah. you know, the token is different than like equity, like a stock of Apple, if you will. Yeah. And so it will be interesting what comes out of that. Um, so we'll be 
looking at that. And I think that was one. And second, there was an arrest warrant for Doe. Uh, Korean authorities issued an arrest warrant for Doe Kwon, the founder of Terra. He's supposed to be in Singapore, which my understanding is doesn't have an extradition treaty with Korea. Nonetheless, will be interesting to, to see that. Very interesting. I feel like they're going to try to make a case out of this one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Anything else on, on your mind? No, not really. I'm feeling good. Like, success for the entire industry. Um, yeah, all is good. No macro talk. Successful, too. No macro talk. You know, I don't like the macro talk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Really nice. I want to point out just two book recommend or two book recommendations, actually. One of them is uh, The Beginning of the End. I just started reading it actually earlier today. This is why I was late to the podcast. The End of the World is Just the Beginning um, by Peter Zahan. There's a great YouTube interview. Oh, so oh, Peter is great. Yes. yes. Very refreshing take. Um, Pro US and why the US actually mm. survived this and this. Uh, but yeah, really good book. Um, and so I would encourage folks to check it out. The other one, you talk about design. This is more of like a, a like a coffee book table, web design. Oh, I love that cover. That is awesome. The Evolution of the Digital World. Um, really, actually, just fantastic. Like I was, I sometimes buy these. Is it, are, there, are there pictures? You know, I like those pictures in the book. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's, it's great. It's like a... What the, what they're called, Tony? Web, web designs? The web design, the evolution of the digital oh. world, 1990 to today. It's, uh, it's amazing. It's like, I love how the internet happened. Um, just chronicles like nice. the evolution of the internet and just gives us some really good, uh, appreciation for mm-hmm. the, that historical development to then, I think, think about how this new world of internet 3.0 is going to develop. Uh, and this one is kind of second to that. It's just really nice to go back in history um, and look at the first websites and how clunky they were and why it was being used and li- literally like websites that had pictures of cats. Like, and then you think about like, okay, we had crypto kitties and like, <laughs> uh, it's, it's really, I think it was again, cliche Mark Twain history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. And so anyways, pretty interesting, uh, book. And so, uh, it's a fun read. Nice. Very cool. I'll check it out. Santi. Good chat, my friend. Uh, everyone should check out the Cosmos app on, uh, on, on Monday if you're not subscribed to the pod already. And I guess the NFT, music NFT pod with Koopa, who just raised the fund. Koopa Troopa, yeah. Koop just raised 10 million bucks for music NFT fund. We recorded with him. We have a lot of good episodes coming out soon. Great. Good stuff, uh, sir. Thank you very much. And thanks everyone for listening. Hope we didn't bore you. Or I keep telling a lot of people that this is like free melatonin that you can just uh, go to sleep. But Hopefully it's not. And if you want to hear about anything specific, drop us a comment for listening. Santi, I just got to say, you you know the panda ETH merge meme? I can't stop looking at you and seeing a panda. I'm just going to say. Because of your headphones. It's a revert. You've got the headphones are like the panda ears. What? <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm a panda? I don't, I, I, I like to think it's that. It's a compliment. Okay, it's I'll compliment. think it as a compliment. Pandas like sleep a lot. I wish I slept like a panda. I don't. Thank you, JP Morgan Investment Banking. Uh, I should probably do a class action lawsuit around my circadian rhythm being totally destroyed. But yeah. Anyways, thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. Thank you. (laughs) Be well, my friend. Be well. (laughs) 